who's in control of your life? It's a tricky question. Are you in control? Is God in control of your life? Maybe you said to yourself recently, my life is out of control. Now, self-help bloggers and authors will tell you to take control of your life. Here are 20 ways to take control of your life. Sounds like good advice, right? But then there's Jesus who says confusing things like this. Those who try to secure their life will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. So which is it? Am I supposed to take control of my life or am I supposed to lose control and give it up to God? Now, I think I'm normal in that I personally like to have control over certain things, especially things with buttons. I prefer to be the sole possessor of the remote control. Anybody else out there? I even make stuff up to justify my possession of the remote control. Stuff like, well, I'm just better at using the remote control. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I know how to work it after all, so it only makes sense that I should be the one in control of the remote control. Stephanie, my wife, is very gracious in the matter. <clears throat> in general, she lets me have the remote control. She's gracious like a parent is gracious with her toddler because she doesn't want the kid to throw a fit. <laughs> Sometimes the parent decides that it's just not worth it to have control. But do you see the paradox even in this example? The parent actually is in control when she makes the decision to let her kid have the remote control. Yeah? Hold on to that thought, and we're going to shift gears a bit. Since Christmas, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John. We're coming near the end of it, and this morning we begin a slow, attentive walk through chapters 18 and 19. These chapters tell the story of Christ's passion, a word that means to suffer. His betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death. And sometimes we reserve this part of the story solely for Good Friday, but every now and then it's helpful to deal with these events in more detail. So that's what we'll be doing over the next four Sundays. The last four Sundays of Lent will be paying close attention to Christ's passion, as recorded in John 18 and 19. Now, what's interesting about the way John tells the story is that he's very much interested in this idea of control. Who's in control of these events? Is it Jesus or Judas? Is it God or Satan? Is it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the world? Who is in control? We learn a good deal about control even for our own lives through Christ's passion. So let's get into the story beginning with chapter 18, verse 1. But first, let us pray. Holy Spirit, unplug our ears to hear. Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds with truth. Holy Spirit, warm our hearts with faith in Jesus. Amen. Here is the good news of our Lord. After he said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples and crossed over to the other side of the Kidron Valley. He and his disciples entered a garden there, 
Judas, his betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. Judas brought a company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him, so he went out and asked, who are you looking for? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Judas, his betrayer, was standing there with them. When he said, I am, they shrank back and fell to the ground. He asked them again, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. If you are looking for me, then let these people go. This was so that the word that had spoken might be fulfilled. I didn't lose any one of those whom you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the guards from the Jewish leaders took Jesus into custody. They bound him and led him first to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it was better for one person to die for all the people. Now Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Because this other disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. However, Peter stood outside near the gate. Then the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, came out and spoke to the woman stationed at the gate, and she brought Peter in. The servant woman stationed at the gate asked Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples? I'm not, he replied. The servants and the guards had made a fire because it was cold. They were standing around it, warming themselves. Peter joined them there, standing by the fire and warming himself. Meanwhile, the chief priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teachings. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews gather. I've said nothing in private. Why ask me? Ask my disciples and ask those who have heard me. Meanwhile, after Jesus spoke, one of the guards standing there slapped Jesus in the face. Is that how you would answer the high priest, he asked? Jesus replied, if I speak wrongly, testify about what was wrong. But if I speak correctly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing with the guards, warming himself, and they asked, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter denied it, saying, I'm not. A servant of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said to him, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. 
At first glance, God does not appear to be in control. It's a cold night in the garden, and based on the events that transpire, God does not appear to be in control. Jesus is with his disciples who have become his best friends, and they're hanging out at their normal spot. If they were kids, they might call it their secret hiding place. That's where they are. The garden is their place of refuge. It's where they relax. It's where they drop the masks they've been wearing all day in order to impress others. The garden is where they can just be themselves and have a good time. Do you have a place like that? Do you have friends like that? I pray you do. Well, this is their place, their hangout spot, and they are among friends. Then... (laughs) Out of nowhere, a Roman military troop of 600 soldiers roll onto their secret garden with their phony friend Judas leading the way. It's clear right away the gang is not here for a picnic. No plastic plates or butter knives, but lanterns, torches, and weapons, our scripture text says. And they are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. They intend to kill him. Peter, one of Jesus' friends, knows it. In Peter's perspective, Jesus has lost control of the situation. That must mean that God is no longer in control, and since God is not in control, Peter takes control. Right when Jesus surrenders himself to the troops, Peter takes matter into his own hands. If God's not going to do something about this, then I will. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. This is Peter's way of taking control. Violence. (laughs) Using his sword as a weapon for violence. And he just about kills a man named Malchus, who's just doing his job. Now this is Peter we're talking about. The same Peter who heard Jesus teach If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is the same Peter to whom Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is Peter we're talking about, a leading disciple of the nonviolent Jewish rabbi, and he was just a few inches away from killing a man. Why did Peter do it? This was Peter's way of taking control when God himself appeared out of control. Truth be told, we're not all that different from Peter, are we? When God does not appear to be in control, in control of the things that matter to us, what do we do? We take control, don't we? At least we try. A fourth grader wants so badly to be in the cool crowd, but his jeans are always ripped and his shoes have holes in them. He comes from that kind of family, so he's an easy target for ridicule. He prays, God, if you're out there, help me make friends. But a couple days pass and nothing changes, so he starts to gossip. He finds another kid to bully. After all, nothing unites like a common enemy. He does everything he can to prove how tough he is to the cool kids. Maybe he gets what he wants. Maybe he wins them over and steps into the circle of popularity, but at what cost to others? This is the way of Peter in the garden, taking control 
when God doesn't answer our prayers. The coworker gets the promotion over us by conniving and flattering and lying his way to it. You've worked harder and you've produced better results. You've even prayed, Lord, I want the promotion. I work hard for it. I've deserved it. Why didn't you give it to me? Hearing no answer, you take control of the situation. Next time the opportunity comes around, you cheat a little bit, you lie a little, you pull a few tricks, and maybe you even get what you want. But at what cost to your soul? This is the way of Peter in the garden. When God does not appear to be in control, it's so tempting to take control ourselves. What do you do when God does not seem to be taking care of things? Peter draws a sword and tries to murder a man because he's the kind of person who won't back down from a fight. This is the way of Peter in the garden. It's the way of you and me when we, t- when we take control of a situation but ignore the law of love. When we take the lead but don't listen to our leader, Jesus. When we take charge without trusting in God. That's the way of Peter in the garden, but it's not the way of Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then Luke tells us Jesus touched the ear of Malchus and healed him. Prince Peter is rebuked for trying to take control of the situation but ignoring the law of love. Jesus rebukes us too when we do the same. We're rebuked not just for our outward actions, whatever those might be, We're rebuked because of what's in the heart, the anxiety, the worry, the fear, all rooted in a lack of trust in God, a failure to believe that God is ultimately in control. That's why Peter is rebuked. He's already been told the truth about the situation. He just doesn't want to believe it. Jesus has already told him that God is in control. The Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus says in John 3, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Later on, Peter hears similar words from the lips of his leader, John 8. When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am. A third time, John 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus has clearly told Peter what was going to happen. And he's told Peter that it will be all right because God's in control. But when the shadows lengthen and the night turns cold, Peter stumbles in the darkness. He just can't let go of his desire for controlling things himself. His desire for control is greater than his reliance upon Jesus. Peter, it may look like the Roman soldiers with their muscles and weapons are in control, but don't believe it. I'm in control. Rely on me. Heed my teachings of peace. Things are actually going according to plan. It's so hard for Peter to believe. It's so hard for us to believe, too. 
Because it's, it's just such an unusual plan, isn't it? God's first plan of attack is to be attacked. God's plan of victory is to get beaten up so badly that everybody thinks he's lost. God's strategy for success is self-sacrifice. In the divine mind, when all of these things are happening, God is in control. When Jesus is betrayed and bound, God is in control. When Jesus is denied and crucified, God is in control. When God becomes flesh and is slapped in the face, God is in control. The prophet Isaiah was surely right, wasn't he? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways. In our minds, being in control means being on top. According to our thoughts and ways, being in control means being in a position of power. From the top of our mound of power, we exert our will over another. That's what we think being in control means. It means having the remote. It means getting our own way. The Boilermakers have been in control the entire second half, we might say. That means they are on top. They are winning by a large margin. They have a superior advantage over the other team. They are playing great basketball, aren't they? Now that's our idea of control. It's Peter's idea of control, too. So when it looks like Jesus is losing, when it's 600 soldiers to 12 disciples, when the powerful Roman army arrests Jesus and handcuff him and slap him in the face, Peter assumes it means that Jesus is not in control anymore. Here's the surprising reality. Jesus is in control, even in the suffering. Jesus is in control, especially through the suffering. Because when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, he draws all people to himself. Going back to the trivial example of the remote control for a minute, let's be honest, we all know who's in control of this relationship, don't we? Deep down, Stephanie knows she has the power to take the remote back whenever she'd like, but she allows me to hold it for a little while out of love. And the parent knows he can take the toy away from the toddler at any time, but he allows the kid to play with it until her heart's content. Now, in a similar fashion, Jesus knows that God is in control, even though at the present moment, Jesus' hands are tied. Jesus knows he could call on his Father, who would at once put at his disposal thousands of angel armies. It's true. But Jesus also knows that the way to victory is the way of the cross. Jesus also knows that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus also knows there's no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So Jesus tells the band of soldiers, if you are looking for me, then let my friends go. Here we have a great paradox of the Christian faith. A paradox is when two things seem contradictory. 
when it appears that two things can't both be true. But upon further investigation, it's discovered that somehow they are both true. The paradox in our passage is that Jesus both submits and takes control. Two things that don't seem to go together in our minds. Submission and control. Jesus both submits to suffering and takes control of the situation. This is the paradox of the gospel. It's the way of divine love. The way of the cross becomes the way of life and peace. Jesus' control of the situation, it's seen first in verse 4, but it's easy to miss. Verse 4 begins, Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him. Paul's right there. Friends, Jesus was not surprised, as were the disciples. Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him. That's control. (laughs) So he went out and he asked, who are you looking for? That's also control. Jesus does not wait for the general to ask him a question. Jesus initiates. Jesus takes the lead. Jesus puts the question to them. Who are you looking for? That's control. Now later that evening, Jesus has his hands tied, and he's being interrogated by the chief priests. Well, that's submission. And one of the guards slaps Jesus in the face. Consider, the word became flesh and was slapped in the face. That's submission. But listen to Jesus' reply. Verse 23. If I speak wrongly, testify about what was wrong. But if I speak correctly, why do you strike me? Now again, that's control. For one, Jesus keeps his own emotions under control. How would you react if someone slapped you? Jesus, his natural response is to simply, calmly tell the truth. Jesus is so aligned with the Father's love that he does not boil with anger when slapped, but neither does he cower in fear. Instead, Jesus responds by speaking the truth in love. If I've said something wrong, prove it. But if I've spoken the plain truth, why this slapping around? This is Jesus' way of fighting back. He has no need for a man-made sword to be in control. Jesus' revelation is his sword. Jesus speaks the truth, and that's enough to knock the soldiers on their bottoms. Nowhere is this paradox more clear than back in verse 6. Now get ready, I've saved the best for last. After Jesus initiates the conversation and the general names Jesus the Nazarene as the man they're looking for, Jesus responds with two Greek words. Ego, eimi. Repeat that after me once, would you? Ego, eimi. It literally translates, I, I am. He could have just said, Amy, I am. That would have been the most natural way to respond. But instead, Jesus is drawing attention to something by repeating the pronoun, I, I am. And he's not stuttering. What is Jesus up to here? This is the language of revelation. This is the language God uses to reveal the true nature of who God is. 
the first time God ever reveals God's name through Moses, to Moses, through the burning bush, you remember that? Guess what God says? Ego, me. The same two Greek words. Exodus 3, 14. Moses said to God, what is your name? God said to Moses, ego, me. I, I am. So here's what Jesus is up to. In the midst of his willing submission, Jesus demonstrates total control and power over everything. I, I am. Jesus, in his moment of weakness and surrender, discloses the secret to the band of soldiers. Ego in me, I, I am. I am the eternal word who became flesh and lived among you. I am the true light that enlightens everyone. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the son of man and son of God. I am what a true human being looks like, and I am what God fully revealed looks like. I am the God-man, and right now I am willingly giving myself up in love for you and for the world. I am. No wonder the troops are stunned. Verse 6 tells us, when Jesus said, I am, they shrank back and fell to the ground. 600 armed soldiers <laughs> with a simple word. Now you understand why. The famous 4th century theologian, St. Augustine, he writes this about verse 6. He says, With no other weapon than his own solitary voice, uttering the words, I am, Jesus knocked down, repelled, and rendered helpless that great crowd, even with all their ferocious hatred and terror of arms. For God lay hidden in that human flesh. And eternal day was so obscured in those human limbs that he was looked for with lanterns and torches to be slain in the darkness. I am, he says, and throws the wicked to the ground. That's control, my friends. Even in his submission to suffering, Jesus is fully in control. Is there anyone here this morning that needs to know that Jesus is in control? I don't know what each of you are going through. I know Rhett's not having a good time right now. I don't know what difficult situation you face, but some of us feel like it's all up to us. You have to be the one who takes control, or else. The pressure to control, it stirs up stress within you. Anxiety rises to the surface along with fear, but you don't have time to pay attention to your feelings. You stuff your feelings down along with the empty calories, and you try to rise to the occasion. After all, Ultimately, you are the one who has to take charge, or else. John's testimony about Jesus counters this way of thinking. I believe John's message is trustworthy and true. Do you? It's not you who has to be in control, or else, because Jesus is already in control, even when it appears he's not. Jesus is in control even when there's loss and pain and suffering. Jesus is in control and we're not. 
just as God was fully in control throughout the terrible events of Jesus' suffering, so too God is fully in control even now through whatever circumstances come our way. Amen? Of course, we feel, we, we like to feel like we're in control. It's human nature. Most of us want that remote. But our sense of, our sense of total control is an illusion. Sure, we have a limited range of control, but ultimately, ultimately, we're not in control. When we sit back and reflect on it, we know it's true. We cannot control so many things we want to control. We cannot control so many people whom we want to control. So much of our life is simply out of our hands. But it's not out of God's. You are not out of God's hands. So may this be our prayer this week, which is the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Whatever circumstance you are trying to control, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whatever person you are trying to control, into your hands, O God, I commit my spirit. Whatever outcome you are trying to ensure, Into your hands, Heavenly Father, I commit my spirit. If you want to take control of your life, first, you must lose control. Your reliance upon Jesus must overcome your desire for control. Surrender it to the Father, who is the only only one ultimately in control anyways. Into your hands, good Father, I commit my spirit. Then, in an act of grace, God will pour his spirit of power upon you. Then, God will make it possible for you to live a life controlled by the Holy Spirit of power and love. Then, you will discover the marvelous peace of a life lived in the hands of the Father The Father who's got the whole world in his hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Let us pray.